If you've got a Bible this morning, we're in Proverbs chapter three is where we're gonna be as we continue in this worship and wisdom series bouncing to a proverb this morning. We were in Psalms last weekend in Psalm 63. Uh, but this weekend we're in Proverbs chapter three. We'll start in verse one, read down through verse eight together. If you don't have it in front of you, you can follow along on the screen as we read together. In the book of Proverbs, beginning in verse one of chapter three, the ancient sage writes these words, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, one of the things that all of us, I don't think there's anybody who would raise their hand and say, you know what, I just want to live as a fool. Like, like that's my aspiration in life. That's my aim. That's my great agenda is that whenever I die, that on my tombstone, someone would write these words, the greatest fool who ever lived, right? I don't think any of us have those kinds of aspirations or agendas for our lives. In fact, I think most of us would say we want to live wisely. We want to live skillfully. But one of the things that we need to come to terms with is this, is in the Bible, wisdom and knowledge are separate things. They're not the same. They're not equa- they're not, there's not an equal sign drawn between those two things. You can know a whole lot about a whole lot and do very little with it, right? Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's, what, it's you living out what you have now come to know, right? W- knowledge can be gained in a moment, but wisdom takes a lifetime to acquire, Okay, and so as we take a look at this morning at Proverbs chapter three, what I want us to consider together is the, the this, this this idea of wisdom because we desperately need it in our day and time, don't we? We desperately need it in our lives. Those of us who are parents know we are leaning on God for wisdom day after day after day on how to raise kids. Those of us who are married know we need wisdom for God day after day after day of how to relate to our spouse. Those of us who have a job, right, which hopefully most of us in the room do, we're leaning on God for wisdom and how to perform that and how to relate to coworkers and bosses. We need wisdom from God. Unfortunately, this great need that we all have when it comes to living skillfully and living wisely is not something that everyone within our culture wants. Because not everybody wants wisdom. Everybody needs it, but not everybody wants it. Because we live in a very fast food, instant internet culture, right? Where you can go to Google and click a button and it pulls up 17 responses to whatever question you've asked it. And there you go. That's what you should do, right? That's knowledge. That's not wisdom, Okay, just just so you know, right? Google is not wisdom. It's a lot of knowledge, no wisdom, right? Because wisdom is not, some of you heard me say this before, wisdom is not a door that you walk through. Wisdom in the Bible is a path that you walk down, okay? See, knowledge is a door that you walk through, right? You can walk through a door and all of it, like, boom, instantly within 0.3 seconds of a Google search, you can find, uh, like, 73 facts about aardvarks, right? Whatever it is that you're researching. You can find all kinds of knowledge instantly. You can walk through that door and all of a sudden be enlightened and have all kinds of knowledge. But wisdom is not a door that you walk through. It's a path that you walk down. So you're constantly putting one foot in front of the other, taking step after step after step after step after step in the same direction. That's wisdom. 
in the Bible. It's not a door, it's a path. And because it's a path, there's a lot of people who, they, they don't want a path, they want a door. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Like if there was just, if, it, if I could just like grab a hold of this technique or I could grab a hold of this technology that would revolutionize my life because I, I want a door, not a path. In fact, C.S. Lewis, one of the great theologians of last century said it this way. He said, for the wise men of old, he said, the cardinal problem, in other words, the, the biggest issue for them, he says, of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And he says, the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. But for the modern man, he says, the big issue for them, the cardinal problem of their life, is how to conform reality to their wishes. And the solution is not wisdom, discipline, and virtue, but the, wisdom, the solution is a technique. Right, the wisdom of our age is Amazon.com self-help section where you can find a book on five ways to do this, five ways to do that, and three ways to do the other. Right? That's, that's the kind of wisdom that we long for and crave because we want a door, not a path. Right? We don't want to see, we don't want, ever, we don't want anyone else setting limitations for us as far as um, the, the steps that we take and the path that we walk down much less God setting those limitations for us. We want a wide open playing field, right? We want, a, we want instant results. But all throughout the Bible, you, you don't ever see a wisdom talked about as a door. It's always talked about as a path. And so here's what I wanna do this morning is in the, in the time that we have, I want us to talk about what, what are the steps that you take, right? One of our elders later this summer is gonna talk about the starting line of wisdom, right? Out of Proverbs chapter one. But what I wanna talk to you about this morning are the steps that you take once you cross that starting line, okay? What are the steps along that path of living skillfully and wisely? And I think the author of this proverb helps us to understand what are those things that you do every morning that you wait when you wake up and you put one foot in front of the other and you begin to walk down the path of wisdom, okay? And here's, here's the big idea coming out of Proverbs chapter three is this, is that the author of the proverb says this, if you want to live wisely, then you have to learn to take these steps, right? Put these one foot in front of the other and live to show God to be your trust, that you live to show God to be your trust. Look, in, in, in Proverbs chapter three, in verse five, the, pro- the author says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. See, it's one thing to say that you believe in God. Right? 99% of the people you meet on the street, you ask them, hey, do you, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. Right? In our, in our, particularly in our culture, in our particular little subculture here in the suburbs of Dallas. Yes, I believe in God. Of course I believe in God. I was raised in church, right? I grew up in this little country church out there in the backwoods in the boondocks and my mom and daddy drug me to church right from the time that I was conceived in their womb. I was sitting in services Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, right? Awanas, GAs, VBS, preteen camp, youth camp, went to all those things, got all the t-shirts. Of course I believe in God. But the, but the author of the proverb doesn't say that. He doesn't say believe in God with all of your heart because belief oftentimes for us signifies passive where trust is always active. You have lots of passive beliefs that exist within your life. But the question is where is your true trust? Where is your true trust? Right? And the author of the proverb says, doesn't say believe in God with all your heart. He says trust in the Lord with all your heart. In fact, the Hebrew word there for trust, right, when it shows up in other places in the Bible, 
It always, it never gets translated as a belief. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, so here's what happened. One day, like all the, when Hebrew began to die as a language, all the Greek speakers said, we need to take all these words in the Old Testament, translate them into Greek so we can continue to read this and kind of pass it along. And so they created a translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language called the Septuagint. And all throughout the Old Testament where this word shows up translated into Greek and then into English oftentimes, it never gets translated as believe, never. But it gets translated as to hope, to be persuaded, to have trust and confidence to rely on. That's how it shows up all throughout the Bible. It's never this idea of passive belief, but it's always this idea of active. I've been persuaded to throw the weight of my life upon God. This last week when we were on vacation, uh, we stayed down in a, a little place outside of San Marcos called Geronimo Creek Resort. It was a resort, okay? Um, and so we stayed in these little tree houses. They weren't really tree houses. Don't tell my kids that because that's what they think they were. But they were, it were like these elevated uh, uh, cabins on the side of a creek that were raised up probably a good 20 feet off the ground on these piers and the trees kind of came up through the decking that connected them. Um, it was really kind of cool little, little place. Uh, but one of the amenities there, they had like, you know, a couple little wooden decks out over Geronimo Creek, which is a tributary, tributary to the Guadalupe River. And Geronimo Creek is a spring-fed creek, which means this the water is clear and cold and so they had a couple little wooden decks with kayaks and paddle boards but one of the things they had was a rope swing and a couple of ropes you could swing out off of the bank into the river or, or into the creek and it was deep enough where you could fall out there in the middle and swim around splash have a good time right play with the snakes and turtles and all those kinds of fun things and so here like the only way for me to get in the water right because it's clear and cold was all at once you know what I'm talking about, right? Because if you just kind of inch in, as soon as that water hits your lower back, it's like, <laughs> like you just make all these weird noises and sounds because it's just painful. You don't want to get in. So you have to get in all at one time. And so I swing, I swing off of the rope, swing into the water, splash down, right? Kind of took your breath away a little bit uh, for a moment and then your body kind of adjusts and then you have a good time, right? Painful going in, enjoyable once you're there. But one of the other families that was staying in another cabin, uh, the dad was kind of floating out in the middle of the creek on a little noodle, just kind of resting his arms and his kids. He had, I think they had three daughters running around playing. And one of his daughters was up on uh, the creek bank with the rope, getting ready to try and swing out. And she was having a hard time trying to get her foot up into the little loop at the bottom of the rope and grab on one of the little handholds on the knots up higher to swing out into the creek. And so the dad was kind of coaching her up from the, from the creek as he's just kind of floating there. He's like, okay, hey, pull it down, get your foot, yeah, giving her all step-by-step -step instructions. And finally, after all the coaching, he just goes, trust me, trust me. Now, what that dad was saying, what that father meant when he said trust me was not, he was not, he did not mean believe what I am saying to you, right? That's not what he meant. He didn't mean give intellectual assent to these ideas that I'm communicating to you as I coach you along. That's not what he was saying. What that father was saying when he said, trust me, was this. He said, was saying, follow my direction. Act on what I'm saying to you. Believe that what I'm saying to you will actually work whenever you begin to take that step. Rest the weight of your life on my counsel. Right, put what I'm saying to you into practice and you will swing off of that creek bank out into the middle of the creek where you can drop off into the icy, I mean very refreshing water. <laughs> right, that's what he was saying. 
He wasn't saying, hey, just believe what I'm saying to you. He was saying, trust it. Rest the weight of your life upon it. And that's what it means to trust. It means it's not passive intellectual agreement, but active, willful obedience as you throw the weight of your life upon the counsel and the wisdom of God. And you trust in the Lord because you recognize that he is a place of confidence that you could be secure and safe in that and unconcerned. It's not merely to believe passively, but to rely on, to hope in, to be persuaded that he is engineered and his counsel is engineered to support the weight of your life. That's what the author of the proverb is saying. Trust in the Lord. But notice where he says to do it, with all your heart with all of your heart. Now the heart in the Bible is not, it never was, just this kind of fist-sized organ pumping blood throughout your body. That's what it is physiologically. But it, biblically and theologically, it was always the center of your life. The very center of your life. Right? The thing that's most true about you is that you rest the weight of your life upon the counsel, wisdom, and teaching of God. That you realize that he is engineered to support your weight. That you're confident and unconcerned, safe and secure at the very core of who you are. It's what makes me who I am. That I'm resting the weight of my life upon God. So it means that, that in my mind, I'm wanting to think the, think the, think. I'm wanting to think the thoughts of God after him, right? In my heart, I'm wanting to order my affections after God's priorities. In my will, I'm wanting to constantly bend my will to the very will of God and submit to him and bend my knee to him and honor him with my life. That at the very core of who I am, all of my weight is resting on him. Trust me, he says. Like a good father, he's left this word for you and for me. Now the question isn't, remember, passively do I believe in God, but am I living to show him to be my trust? Am I living to show him to be my trust? And so that was the, that was the big idea. And so here's, here's where I wanna follow up. I wanna tell you how to do that from the text. This is what the author of the Proverbs says. That the first thing that you do if you're going to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, he says this, is that you have to give up on your own understanding. You have to sever your reliance on your own wisdom. Look at what he says in the text, in the last part of verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And then verse seven gives us some commentary on that part of verse five when it says, be not wise in your own eyes. Right? Don't, don't, don't rely on your own wisdom. Don't lean on your own understanding. It wasn't engineered to bear the weight of your life. Right? It will crack and crumble under the weight of your life. If as you put one foot in front of the other and you try and walk down a path, the path is your wisdom, is your understanding. You're so wise in your own eyes that you don't fear the Lord and shun evil, but you shun the Lord and embrace evil as you continue to walk down in dependence upon yourself and not upon him, then eventually that foundation will begin to erode under your feet. And it will collapse. In fact, some of us in the room right now, maybe some of the things that are going on in our lives are not merely the result of circumstances or situations outside of our control, but they may be consequences of our own making as our life kind of begins to erode a little bit because we've been leaning on our own understanding. So how do you, how do you know if you, if you haven't given up on your own wisdom yet? Let me give you a couple of benchmarks or a couple of diagnoses here. First way is this, is you know you're relying on your own understanding and that you're wise in your own eyes if you have to do mental gymnastics 
to explain away the plain meaning of scripture, right? So you read a text of scripture and it's giving you a command, something like to, to bend, bend your will to and to, to obey, right? And you, you have to go through a 17-step argument to explain away the plain meaning of what that text says, right? You're constantly looking for loopholes. If that's the case, then you're leaning on your own understanding. You're saying my wisdom is better than God's wisdom. My understanding is better than God's understanding. What I think is better than what God knows. Right, another way that you can, you can determine whether or not you've given up on your own understanding is this, a second way is that if you're relying on your own understanding and you're wise in your own eyes, is that you, you never side with God's design over your desires, right? You, you, you never go, you know what, I'm gonna say no to myself here because I realize God hasn't designed me that way. God hasn't designed life to work that way and so I'm gonna say no to this. I'm gonna say yes to God. But if you're leaning on your own understanding, here's what you're constantly doing. You're constantly saying no to God and yes to your desires. You're never siding with God against yourself. That means you're just resting the weight of your life on what you think instead of what God knows or what you feel instead of what God has designed. And the Bible says if you're gonna live to show God to be your trust and put one foot in front of the other day after day, you're gonna have to give up on your own understanding. But the second thing that it says is this in the text is, is that you have to not only give up on your understanding but you have to give God the right of way in your life. You have to give God the right of way. Look at what he says in verse six. In verse six, he says, um, acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your paths straight. Now there's more than one way to acknowledge somebody, isn't there? When somebody walks into the room, you can acknowledge them in one of two ways, right? You can give them a little head nod, what's up, right? Shake their hand, say hello, introduce yourself. You can acknowledge their presence there in the room. Or you can yield to them. That's another way to acknowledge someone, like open the door for them, allow them to go through the door before you, right? Not just a little head nod, but you actually yield, you step back and allow them to step forward. You acknowledge their presence and allow them to move in front, right? Same thing happens on the interstate, right? I don't know what it is about people and water and driving over it, but I don't know if you ever drive from Dallas back into Rockwall at rush hour, but man, as soon as you hit that bridge at Bass Pro, it's like everybody slams on the brakes and goes 15 miles an hour over the lake. I'm not sure why. I don't know what the phenomenon is. I love the water too, but you also like to go 65 and 65. You know what I'm saying? Right? But every time you come back across that bridge, everybody just kind of comes down to a gridlock. And if you've ever been in that experience on the interstate where you've got just cars all around you and stop and go and people are just kind of crawling along, inevitably somebody to your left or your right is going to have their blinker on. They're going to kind of be looking at you. Now you can acknowledge them by giving them a little head nod. What's up? <laughs> or you can try and shake their hand. I wouldn't advise that, right? It'd be a little bit challenging. Or the way you acknowledge them, if they got their blinker on, they're giving you that, that eye, like I need to get over because I got to exit up here or I want to get over so I can get around everybody. The way you acknowledge them is by pushing your brakes and allowing them to move in front. You yield to them. You give them the right of way. Allow them to move ahead and continue to move forward. And when the Bible says acknowledge God in all your ways, it's not saying give God a little head nod and a sup, Right? It's not saying give him a little fist bump and a handshake. That's not what it's saying. It's saying yield to him the right of way, acknowledge him, allow him to move ahead and move you forward. 
And then you put one foot in front of the other right behind him as you're following after him and walking in his ways. In fact, the word ways in the Bible, it means this. It means all the course of your life. Everything that that encompasses your daily routines and activities, your daily activities, your daily rhythms, your daily routines, that you're yielding to God in all of those things and giving him the right of way, acknowledging him. That's what wisdom is. So that's why it's not a door, but it's a path because every day when you wake up, it's giving up on your own understanding not being wise in your own eyes. God, I don't know enough to figure out this life for myself, but God, I'm gonna lean the weight of my life and rest the weight of my life on you and your counsel and your wisdom. I'm gonna give up on my own and I'm gonna yield to you the right of way in every arena, aspect, and area of my life. That's wisdom, putting one foot in front of the other. It's recognizing and responding to God in all these various multifaceted colored aspects of your life, right? It means that whenever, for instance, it means that whenever you're, you're propositioned for an extramarital affair, no matter how attractive the person is or how empathetic and understanding they are, that you yield the right of way to God in obedience. And like Joseph, you just get out of there even if you leave your clothes behind. You know what I'm saying? It means wisdom, yielding the right of way to God, means that whenever you look into the eyes of a person who's in need, that you don't harden your heart towards them, but you're soft towards them. You yield the right of way to, to God in that moment, saying, God, how can I best engage this person? How can I best meet their need? It means that whenever you're annoyed by the things that you see in your spouse, you got real quiet on that one. <laughs> when you're annoyed by the things that you see in your spouse, that you yield the right of way to God, right? And you see and you stay. It means, it means that whenever there's conflict in your relationships, that you yield the right of way to God and you aim to reconcile those relationships as opposed to cutting bait and moving on down the road. It means that you use your sexuality as a single or a married adult or as a student in ways that are honoring to God and you yield the right of way to God. You Sometimes you side with God against yourself, against your own desires and say yes to God and no no to what you sense and feel in your heart. It means that you yield the right of way to God in the way that you discipline your children, right? In all these areas of life, you're yielding the right of way, allowing God to move in front and lead you forward. And the Bible says, when you do, he will make your path straight. He will make your path straight. So in order, if we're gonna show God, to live to show God to be our trust, we've gotta give up on our understanding, we've gotta give the right of way to God in all these areas of our life. And when we do, here's what begins to happen, is that that trust, that active trust in our hearts, it begins to come to the surface, right? Because what's subterranean down here begins to show up in life. And it works like this. You ever seen an island or read about how islands form out in the ocean? 
right? They form whenever volcanoes deep beneath the earth's crust or, or down there at the bottom of the ocean begin to erupt and over, they erupt again and again and again and again and again and again. And as that lava spills over and as it cools and dries there on the ocean's floor, it eventually builds on itself until, until eventually all that lava that has been erupting at the, at the bottom of the ocean for hundreds of years eventually rises up to the top and it begins to emerge into an island. And that's what happens in our lives is that we begin to see these islands of trust in God and obedience in, to God that begin to form in the oceans of our lives. And they begin to rise to the surface and they begin to see what's, what's subterranean. This trust that's actively engaged down here in the heart as you're resting your life on God, it begins to move to the surface for everyone to see as you're acknowledging him and giving him the right of way and turning, severing your reliance on your own wisdom. And you begin to have these islands emerging in your life. Now, what, what, what I wanna do here for a moment is this. I want you to, I'm gonna give you a few test cases of whether or not this is true in your life. Of whether or not you're walking down the path of wisdom, right? Or if you just kind of open the door to knowledge, or if you're leaning on your own understanding or giving the right away to God. There's, the Proverbs help us with this tremendously in so many areas, but I'm gonna pick four, right? And we're gonna move through them quickly. And the first one is this, one, one test case for whether or not you're trusting in the Lord with all your heart and leaning not on your own understanding, acknowledging him in all your ways, severing your reliance on your own wisdom is this, it's how you view and handle money. Listen to what the author of the Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 18, verses 10 to 12. He says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Or if you drop further down into Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. See, we live in a day and age in which many people have made their strong city, their strong tower, their 401k and their savings account. That is the refuge they're running into in times of trouble. But it is an insufficient refuge and here's why. Have you ever sat down with someone who was grieving the loss of a loved one and said, it's okay, they had a massive life insurance policy. You're gonna get a big old chunk of payout. Is that comforting in a moment like that? It's, no, because it's not a sufficient refuge. It's not a strong enough city to protect the heart. In fact, that's why the author of the Proverbs says his well, our wealth for many people is like a high wall. It's protecting them from enemies, protecting them from invasion, protecting them from threats, but it's only a high wall where? In their imagination. In what they perceive that is different than reality. How do you view money? And how do you view God? <laughs> Is he the refuge you run to in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your problems? Or do you run to your bank account and spend and spend and spend and spend and spend in order to medicate your soul? Which one's your refuge? Second test case for this is, and it kind of builds off the first one is this is in the area of contentment in your life. 
All throughout the Proverbs, there's these statements over and over again about better is and better than, right? These comparative statements, qualitative comparisons. And listen to some of them. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. 17.1, 15.16, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. 15.17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Over and over again, you see all these better than, better is statements. And here they're talking about better is having very little along with love and peace and quiet and fear of the Lord than having great masses of things with feasting. But along with that feasting would come strife and hatred and turmoil and calamity. Which one do you think is better? See, there are many in our culture who have, who have flipped that around, they would say, you know what, better is feasting with strife than very little with quiet and peace. And so they pursue and pursue and pursue and they chase the American dream day after day. It's what they're putting their feet along that path, chasing the American dream, not, really, not realizing that a part of their chasing is creating calamity in their home at times because they don't see family. They don't see their kids. They don't, they're not there for those milestones. They don't, they're, they're, there's strife within the home. They never sit down and share a meal together at the table which, which, which one? Are you trusting in the Lord with all your heart, leaning not on your own understanding or the wisdom of our culture saying you gotta have bigger, better, shinier, and newer versus can you be content with very little and experience the quiet and the peace and the absence of strife? Another test case of whether you're leaning on your own understanding or trusting in the Lord is how you use your words. How you use your words. You know your words. The, the author of the Proverbs in, in 12, 18 says this. It says, the one who's rash, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. How do you use your words? See, your words are like a blade and they can either cut to hurt or they can cut to heal. One of the two. See, they're, they're like a blade. And so you, like a dude who gets jacked up in an alleyway and somebody pulls a switchblade and shanks him in the side, Right? Your words can devastate people. They can cut them to the core, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is not true. It may have sounded good to tell your child that. Don't worry about what everybody says about you on the playground, but it's not true because words cut to the core and they can hurt deeply. Or they can be used as a scalpel, not a switchblade, but a scalpel very strategically to heal people. How do you use your words? Do you just give full vent to whatever it is that you find in your heart because you never side with God against yourself, right? Whatever you feel is just gonna spew out because the mouth, the Bible says, the mouth is like the ventilation ducts for the furnace of your heart. That whatever is burning in here is gonna come out of here. And is there, are there any filters along that passageway where you go, you know what, I'm not gonna say that because I'm gonna side with God against myself in this moment and I know to say that it's only gonna cut to hurt, it's not gonna cut to heal. How do you use your words? Are you trusting in the Lord with all your heart, resting the weight of your life on him? And then finally, finally, in the area of honor, in the area of honor, 
right? In, in our particular day and age, in our time, in our culture, we honor very self-made people, right? We give them awards, applause, accolades. But over and over again in the, in the Proverbs, it says this in 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Over and over again, we see that pride comes before the fall, but that honor, humility is honored, right? Are you, are, are you one who has kind of this self-madeness because you're wanting to achieve honor for yourself versus one who knows that you're absolutely dependent upon God and his counsel and his wisdom and you're coming under that and allowing in humility, allowing him to raise you up and not raising yourself? How are you pursue honor? Another, another kind of branch off of that is this. How do you relate to those who are of different generations than you? Right, do you honor them? Proverbs 20, 29 says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Some of you don't feel that way right now. With the Bible over and over again in, in, the ancient, in ancient days, right, grayness, there was a splendor to it. There was an honor to it. Long life and wisdom. Right? There is a, an honor and a splendor and a glory associated with a young man and his strength. But there is also an honor and a splendor and a glory associated with an old man and his wisdom and all the life that he's seen as he's put one foot in front of the other and followed God and yielded the right away to him all the days of his life. And a mark of that is grayness. See, before there was nip and tuck and just for men, right? Grayness was something to be celebrated and honored. How do you relate to people who are 20 years your elder? Do you think, man, time has passed them by. They don't understand the day any longer. I can't learn anything from them. I gotta just get around my peers because we all understand each other. Or, or do you press into them and say, you know what, I can learn from them. I want them to lead me. I want to come underneath their wisdom. I want to follow them because God has taught them things that I can never learn in my 25 years of experience that they've learned in their 60. I can learn from their mistakes. I can learn from their successes. I can learn from how they've walked with God. I can learn from how they've loved their spouse. I can learn from how they've dis disciplined and discipled their children. I can learn these things from them. I wanna honor those who have some grayness to them. Maybe I'm saying that because I'm not far away from that, but the Bible says it. How do you see people who are of different generations than you? Are you trusting in your own wisdom, leaning on your own understanding, or coming under God's and putting one foot in front of the other day after day and walking with him? I thought I was done with four, but I'm gonna give you five. And the fifth one is this, is in the area of friendships and relationships. I find some more better is statements in the Proverbs whenever we come to Proverbs chapter 27, verse five, where it says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. And then 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. In other words, also the proverb says, if you want real friends, true friends, lifelong friends, right, you need not remove yourself and distance yourself from those who speak truth to you, but you need to come alongside them and allow them into your life. Right, because none of us, none of us enjoy probably the experience of being called on the carpet and told that we're wrong but you know what the, the Bible says? That you need, you need people who will do that in your life. 
because an open rebuke is better than somebody maintaining radio silence for five years and never stepping in with truth-telling and honesty. It's better to openly rebuke than to hide your, your, your love. In fact, he says that, that when, when someone values, like how do, you, how do you pick friends, but also how, how do you be a friend to others, right? Do you value that in others? Do you say, you know what? I don't want to surround myself with yes men and yes women in my life. But I want people who will challenge me. I want people who I can, I will, I will trust. Like I can, they can gain my trust, but they, they will challenge me. They will speak truth to me. Because I don't want just a bunch of people who are going to flatter me all day long and tell me how great I am, right? I look so tanned and my nails look good and my hair's all right and I, every, everything is fit and, and perfect in my life. They're just going to flatter me all the time. I know I need people who are going to tell me truth. Are you walking based on your own understanding or are you yielding the right of way to God in these areas of your life, in all your ways acknowledging him? Here's the, here's the payoff, the proverb says, if you will, that it will bring healing to you and be refreshment for you. Look at what he says in verse eight. It says it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see, whenever you lean on your own understanding and you're wise enough in your own eyes to try and manage life for yourself, that is the essence of sin. It's the very essence of sin. When our first parents fell in the garden, you know what they did? They leaned on their own understanding. They were wise in their own eyes. They wanted to be like God. They took the fruit and they ate. And as a result of that, it began to fracture all these areas of our life. But God says that if you will trust in him, that you'll put one foot in front of the other and move forward, allow him the right of way, yield to him constantly and consistently in life, it begins to take all these areas of your life that have been fractured and broken by the fall and by your own sin, and it begins to put them back together. How refreshing would it be to be a person who can be honest with someone else without fear of them running away and receive honesty from someone else without them fearing that you're gonna bail? How refreshing would it be just to be content instead of constantly chasing after more, bigger, better, shinier, and newer? How refreshing would it be to put your refuge in God and not in your 401k, to have that wall in your imagination stripped down and know that God is gonna preserve you, that God is going to protect you, that he will be your refuge in Citadel. How refreshing would it be? How refreshing would it be to look at someone 30 years your elder and say, I can learn from you, and someone 30 years your younger and say, I can learn from you or I need you. Because back in my day, <laughs> my day's long gone. <laughs> right, this body is getting weaker and weaker. How refreshing would that be? How, what kind of healing would that bring in your life to yield the right of way to God in every instant? And if that's not enough for you, I wanna close with this. That all these things that we that, that we're, we're, to, we're to give to God, we're, we're to we're to we're to give up our our our, our reliance on our own understanding and give the right away to Him. I want you to understand that you give these things to Him because He's given Himself for you. He's given Himself for you. Look in verse three of this text. There's a phenomenal statement in which the author of the proverb says this. 
He says, let, steadfast, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them, staple them, glue them to your very soul. Don't forget them. And so it begs a question, is, is the author of the proverb talking about our love and faithfulness to God or God's love and faithfulness to us? And some of you are like, why does it matter? It matters and it makes a massive difference and here's why, because it's the difference between just religious activity and the gospel. It's the difference between good advice and good news. It's the difference between moral practice and inner spiritual transformation. It's the difference between I do these things so God will love and accept me and, and I do these things because God has loved and accepted me. See, I think what the author of the proverb meant was this, don't forget the faithfulness of God. Bind it to you, glue it to you, staple it to you, tie it to you, right? Drill it with four inch lag bolts into your soul so that you don't forget the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Don't forget that he's been merciful to you. Don't forget that he's been kind to you. Don't forget that he's been gracious to you. Don't forget that he has redeemed you talking to the people of Israel. Don't forget that he's led you out of slavery and captivity and bondage in the wilderness and he's redeemed you and he's brought you into a land of promise that is flowing with milk and honey. Don't forget how merciful and kind and gracious God has been to you because he gave himself for you. I was watching a movie this, this week in the, in the car with the kids. They were watching How to Train Your Dragon 2 because uh, the first one wasn't enough so they had to come out with a sequel. Number two, and toward the middle of that movie, right, uh, the, the chief of Burke, his name was Stoic. Um, I probably am butchering that name, but uh, you'll forgive me because it's a little Viking-esque, right? Stoic, and he had a son named Hiccup, right? That's the name of the year, by the way. If you're expecting a boy, you should go with Hiccup, right? That is, that, that's, a, that's a good, strong name. Um, but his son's name was Hiccup. Well, Hiccup's mother and Stoic's wife abandoned them when Hiccup was young, and they're reunited with her in this movie, in How to Train Your Dragon 2. And they come across her, and she says that she, had, whenever they come across her, they find her in this cave living with some other dragons. And she goes through this long, she, she runs down this long speech of why she had left and why she had abandoned them, that she left because she wanted, she embraced a life with the dragons as opposed to apart from them. They want to be their enemies, but wanted to be their friends, wanted to live with them. She didn't think her husband, the chief, would understand. He would just want to slay and kill all the dragons. And so she, she bolted and she left them. She's standing there in front of her son and a estranged husband and she's running down this long story and finally she gets to the end and she looks at him and as she looks at him, his eyes are like this big staring back at her and he's just in dead silence like most men are and as he looks at her, she just screams, say something and he raises his hand but not to slap her and he places it on her cheek and he says, you're as beautiful as the day that I lost you. That is steadfast love. That is loyal love. That is merciful love. And I want you to know this morning 
that you give these things to God not so that he would give himself for you but because he has given himself for you in steadfast love and raised his hand to your cheek in tenderness and kindness and compassion and love and loyalty and mercy toward those that he has formed in his image, then why wouldn't you give up on your own understanding? And why wouldn't you give this God the right of way in your life at every turn? And see him piece you back together into his image and heal your soul that has been ripped apart by sin. Are you living to show God to be your trust? Or are you trusting in yourself Those are your two options. I want to pray for us this morning that we would be a people who would live to show God to be our trust and put our feet on the path of wisdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we come today recognizing that we can't figure life out for ourselves. God, we know that you are wise and good. God, that apart from your wisdom, we have only one other choice, it's ours. And God, ours will always crack, ours will always falter, ours will always fail us. God, the foundation of our life will crumble around us and our lives will erode. But God, your aim is to rebuild us. Your aim is to mold and shape us into the image of your son who was given for us. Because there is no place There is no place where your steadfast love and faithfulness is seen in greater degree and volume than at the cross in which your son was given in our place and for our sin that we might know the tender touch of a loving father. That we as your bride might know the tender hand of you as our bridegroom. And then we might rise in the morning and we might put our foot on the path of wisdom, forsaking our own understanding and yielding to you at every juncture so that this trust that is active beneath the surface would, ri- would, would, would rise above the waters of our life and be seen by all that we would come in contact with. God, that we would put our foot in the rope and grab a hold of the knot and swing out into the creek. Trusting you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.